Yle Podcast. This podcast series is based on my experiences while making the documentary film Who Was Felix Kirsten? The film is about Heinrich Himmler's mysterious personal doctor and the revelations that followed. The reason for making this podcast is that after finishing the documentary, well, suffice it to say that the Felix Kirsten story never really went away. Episode 9. The Mysteries of Gutharzwalde. The story of Wilhelm Wolf is also an interesting footnote in the history of World War II. On May 10, 1941, Adolf Hitler's deputy, Rudolf Hess, piloting a Messerschmitt Bf 110, made his solo flight of nearly 1,000 miles from Bavaria to Eaglesham in Scotland on his one-man mission to negotiate peace between Britain and Germany. His astrological advisor had recommended this date as most favorable for a journey in the interest of peace. Six planets were in Taurus, and the moon would be full. The astrologer had told Hess that he pictured him walking through the tapestried halls of English castles bringing peace to two great nations. Wonderful vision, but history tells us that Hess was captured and ignobly imprisoned for life. Hitler went berserk and ordered all professional astrologers in Germany arrested and be sent to concentration camps. Wilhelm Wolf was one of them. He had been one of the most popular and admired astrologers in Germany before he was snatched by the Gestapo and was shipped to Ravensbrück concentration camp, some 80 kilometers north of Berlin. Wolf spent four months in Ravensbrück before he was miraculously released. Why? Because a certain powerful persons needed him. Adolf Hitler wanted to rein in Nazi interest in mysticism and the occult in the pursuit of an ancient Aryan origin. But many high Nazi officials still retained a deep interest in that subject. Free again, Wolf found himself deep inside the German Naval's top-secret research institute and in a highly strange company, which included spiritualists, mediums, pendulum practitioners, you know, those dousers who use a pendulum instead of a dousing rod when searching for, for example, underground wells and groundwater. And, not to mention, an assortment of astrologers, astronomers, ballistics experts, and yes, also mathematicians. But there was yet another twist to come. Wilhelm Wolf ended up devising horoscopes for Heinrich Himmler and Walter Schellenberg, the head of SS counterintelligence and living in Felix Kersten's fancy estate, Gutharfalde. But... Let's come back to Wilhelm Wolf later. Gutharzwalde was the site where Heinrich Himmler met Norbert Masur, the representative of the World Jewish Congress in April 1945, at the time when Himmler and Schellenberg were desperately seeking a separate peace with the Western Allies. I wanted to visit the place again with John Bernstein. His son, Toby, along with his girlfriend, Polly, were again with us. So there we were trying to imagine how the place looked like 73 years ago. We are now heading for Hartsbound. We're about 30 minutes or so, and I'm just wondering how long it had taken for Kerstin to go from Berlin to Hartsbound. Unlike now, where we have highways and fast cars, because when you read the, the memoirs, It seems as if going to Gut uh, Harzbaum was something like a sprung. You just a pub over to 
the manor house and how, what kind of experience it must have been to Norbert Mushroom when war was going on and there were refugees everywhere. The last days of the uh, Third Reich is really uh, unimaginable for anyone who had to fly in at the uh, risk of uh, making it safely and not being uh, strafed by Allies planes and then landing in Berlin and then uh, awaiting uh, the arrival of some kind of a chauffeur uniforms, constant reminder of uh, the SS around you, and, uh, and then ultimately making it to Arzwald and then awaiting uh, the uh, great evil of Heinrich uh, Probably they were using the same roads. Yeah. When you look around and think how everything looked back in 1945 you quite quickly understand that Guthardsvalde was deep in the forest in the middle of nowhere. When approaching the estate itself, I also noticed that the road had once been paved by very expensive and very fancy cobblestone, which now runs beside a meadow. So how far are we? Um, it says the road... What did she say? After 200 meters, turn right, to the tunnel, it should be here. So this is it. But this is the place. It's completely ruined. Yeah. This is it. Yes. Yeah. I remember how my first visit there was fraught with surprises. Or maybe surprise is not the right word to describe what we encountered. At least, that visit there 20 years ago left a lot of open questions which were begging to be addressed once more. The place was in total ruins. The main building had huge cracks across its walls. Only the small outbuilding that housed overnight prisoners slash workers from the Ravensbrück camp was in better shape, because Andreas Kersten, one of Kersten's three sons, had been trying to renovate it in the recent years. There was nothing else much to see. So, a site of uh, some very important historical meeting. It's dilapidated ruins. In a way, I mean, I was thinking that perhaps it's a reminder of a person whom we uh, find uh, to be shall we say, controversial and mysterious and, and is also, as, as evidence shows, to be very duplicitous and dishonest at every turn. Klingenberg told when the few days before the Russians came, they blew the bunker, which is somewhere over there. I know those led to the cracks. Yeah. Now it was time to check the bunker site nearby. Do you have the satellite image? Yeah. If you look at the satellite image, there's some bunkers over there. Yeah, straight ahead. It's maybe only 50 meters away from the house. On Google Maps, it looked to be quite extensive, but we already knew that some parts of the site were built by the Soviets after the war. We came to the gate, which sported a CCTV camera and a sign proclaiming, Do not enter. This is interesting. Do we need to explain something? I think so. Yeah. It didn't take long for a man with his little son along riding a kind of utility van to show up. He was rather friendly and told us that he was the owner of that bunker site. Mm, yeah. uh, it was only built in the 1970s. 
Um, yeah, so um, further away behind this area, which was only constructed in the 1970s. And there are, uh, are 68 um, small bunkers which were built by the Nazis. Oh, so in 1936. We start over there. Yeah. In 1936, yeah. Yeah. Is, so is, is, is that also closed area so that it's not allowed? It's closed, right? It's closed. When man Glück hat, trifft man den Verwalter da am Tor. Oh, okay. It's also closed up, but sometimes you can be lucky and uh, meet the, the guy who looks after the area okay. at the gate, yeah. the groundkeeper. Um, um, and the people in the area, they um, suspect that there's still underground tunnels, um, possibly under Hatzweide. Um, and It was an interesting conversation in which we learned of facts as well as certain rumors about the bunker site. That the bunkers had belonged to the SS was news in itself. But underground tunnels from the bunkers leading to Guthardsvalde? That would be something special. At the suggestion of the fellow, we drove from that side of the property to the other end. We parked the car by another gate and took a walk inside the area. Once again, we noticed the CCTV and the forewarning. I mean, those actually look like paved roads. Uh, I think it's another close to a kilometer, maybe a little bit less, maybe 800 meters until we reach the main mass of bunkers. The whole bunker site had once been a huge military zone. This road serves the bunkers. There is nothing else that this road does. What in the world has been going on here during the war? It's impossible that it had been a mere ammunition depot. It's like a warehouse, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. Something that yeah. But there are a lot of them here. Yeah. How many did he say? 68. 68 and all. Both in 1936. No one in their right mind would risk their family living on a farm only half a kilometer away from the bunkers. How coincidental it is. <laughs> 68 bunkers. And I think you can't really stress the remoteness of this place enough. There's no other reason to be out here. Where we are standing now, there are a little more buildings and bunkers. Uh, we got curious. There was far more to see. Military quarters. Yes. I think we're still a while, while away from the main group of bunkers. We walked for over a kilometer, but still the end of the property was nowhere in sight. We decided to go back and drive in because the gate was raised and unmanned. We drove and drove and saw scores of additional bunkers, all total numbering some 60 plus. Again, we were dumbfounded. When we headed back, we found ourselves trapped inside as now the gate was lowered and secured by a heavy chain and padlock. But that's another story. We already imagined ourselves spending the night there. And after an hour of anxious wait, we were, quote, released by a Herr Porchka, the young caretaker of the other portion of the huge property. He had spotted us on the CCTV and decided to teach us a small lesson. After we reconciled, Porchka promised us a supervised visit inside one of the remaining bunkers the next time. John and I had to rush to the airport back to Denmark and Finland, respectively. But the following week, Toby and Polly were given a grand tour of the site and reported their impressions and findings. Okay, so where should we start? 
I only made a couple of notes of things that we talked about. Also yesterday with Pega Neat, her goal is to kind of like show how Kerstin was not completely responsible for the white bus mission. Then we talked about Gutharzweide and she found the previous owner and the like the owner after Kerstin. So this is the document that she gave me and this is a summary. So here's Kerstin. 35 to 47 and before that it was Walter Simas whom we googled Toby and I and he was a lawyer during the Nuremberg processor. Polly and Toby found out that according to available documents Kirsten was recorded as owner of Gutharzwalde in 1936. Before that the owner had been Walter Siemers. Who was Walter Siemers then? A simple Googling shows that he was an attorney who had been a defense lawyer in the Nuremberg trials defending at least one accused Nazi, German naval commander Admiral Raider. But at the same time, he was also on the legal defense team for Frederick Flick. Okay, who was Frederick Flick then? Well, he was one of the big-time German industrialists who were accused after the war of cooperating with the Nazis, the use of slave labor, and plundering. The whole indictment was, one, war crimes and crimes against humanity, by participating in the deportation and enslavement of the civilian populations of countries and territories under the belligerent occupation of, or otherwise controlled by, Germany, and of concentration camp inmates for use in slave labor in flick mines and factories. Two, war crimes and crimes against humanity through the plundering and spoliation of occupied territories and the seizure of plants both in the West, France, and the East, Poland, and Russia. Three, crimes against humanity through participation in the persecution of Jews and the Aryanization of their properties. Four, membership in the NSDAP and the Circle of Friends of Himmler. Five, membership in a criminal organization, the SS. Flick, among a couple of other directors, was sentenced to seven years in prison. And what's interesting in our story is that Felix Kersten claims in his memoirs that Flick was one of his patients. One circle more closes here, especially when we know now that Kersten also belonged to the circle of friends of Himmler and that he also belonged to the SS. Then she said that Himmler wanted the whole area also good to be non-territorial. Like not belonging to the state. But that's something which Kerstner was also mentioning in his memoirs. Mm. What does it do if you're in a free zone? What's the significance? It's a legal status, I guess. Then, like, the same laws don't apply. And I don't know. That makes it even more interesting to get to know what was the purpose of those bunkers there. Who has owned... Uh, forest where the bunkers side is, because it's the same forest where the good Hartswald is. That all belong to Kersten. Then there is a connection between SS and Kersten. Yeah, the bunker area was built in 36, and if the Guthof was already belonging to Kersten, like, there's no way there wasn't a connection, you know? Yeah. There was still something else, which was a final proof of Gut Hartswald's direct link to the SS bunkers and also casting yet another doubt on Felix Kersten's claims that he had nothing to do with the Nazis and or the SS. All the power for good Hatzwalde came from the bunkers. 
Sorry, all the electricity yeah, and so on. Yeah, the, the generator, yeah, the power lines. <laughs> Heinz Rischke had lived in Guthardsfelde after the war and shared first-hand knowledge about the SS ammunition depot and its storage area as belonging to Guthardsfelde. When Toby and Polly asked about the potential connection between Guthardsfelde and the bunkers, he answered, "Yes, there was. All power used by Guthardsfelde came from the bunkers. There was a big generator house, and from there all the power came to Guthardsfelde." That was a thick cable. The other SS bunkers that we saw were all destroyed and they were massive. I don't know, four meters high, thick mm. cement. Amount of concrete and stuff they used. It's really difficult to get them, get all the concrete away because it's also very expensive. And you don't really know what's like under the bunkers and stuff. So when did they blow the bunkers? Right at the end of like when things were going downhill, the SS destroyed as much as they could. There were like 25 old, really big bunkers that we also looked at and they were all collapsed. When you exit the bunker area, on the right-hand side of the road, leading to the main entrance, those were private homes. You remember the houses uh, across from the sure. um, disabled home? Yeah, yeah, sure. So they were all um, homes of SS officials, which lived there with their families. To the left, across from the private houses, which today is a care facility for disabled people, stood houses for lower-rank SS administration officials. So, Otfalde was surely not just some ammunition depot. It was a huge military zone belonging to the SS, employing hundreds of personnel on a regular basis. It appeared that Gut Otfalde was a reflection of Felix Kersten himself. Seen from the outside, it seemed like a nice and cozy family estate. But behind its shadows, deep in the forest, lurked an SS cable supplying Kersten's proud estate, a direct link. We were amazed with the findings of Guthardsvalde and the bunkers there. The goings-on in both Guthardsvalde and inside those bunkers still remain an enigma. Add to it the account given by the Jehovah Witness Friedrich Klingenberg, that of a mysterious Swedish Red Cross truck arriving in Guthardsvalde. What was it doing there when the rest of the convoy was busy saving lives in Ravensbrück camp? I shared our findings with Boris Solomon, who proceeded to contact both the Bundesarchive and the Stasi archive. They promised to research the matter. I also called my Dutch journalist friend, Joe Verlan, whom I had met earlier and who had also been researching the case of Kersten. We have something very interesting to tell about the bunkers. And what is that exactly? Well... Do you know whom the bunkers belonged? It's a huge site there. It's some uh, 500 meters from Good Hartswald, and yes. they belonged yes. all to SS. It has been some kind of a huge base, actually. And the SS, they blew all the bunkers before the Soviets came to the area, and uh, they had an independent uh, power system there. So they were independent for all the electricity. But uh, the interesting detail is that there were also power supply going to the Kurt Hartswald. So all the talks after the war that he uh, never wore a uniform and he was not part of the Waffen-SS and he was not part of... Interesting detail as well is that... Uh, 97 when we were making the documentary and we were interviewing one of the Jehovah Witnesses who had lived yes. there and how he told that uh, when the Swedes came to the Ravensbrück, which is 25 kilometers from Good Hartswald, that one of the trucks came also to Good Hartswald. 
Jos was amazed. He called back the next day and directed me to a link to one book partially available on the internet. Was that new for you? Yes, I think I have read that book 20 years ago, but when I was looking at it now, it was in a totally different light. Yeah. <laughs> it was our Wilhelm Wolf's, Himmler's and Walter Schellenberg's astrologers' memoirs, entitled Zodiac and Swastika, How Astrology Guided Hitler's Germany. And in those memoirs, he cites Guthardswalde as his residence until Germany's defeat. The podcast is directed and realized by Arto Koskinen. Written by Arto Koskinen and John Bernstein. The voiceover of Arto Koskinen is dramatized by Trent Pansy. Sound design and music is made by Kimmo Vantinen.